0: Welcome to Right Now Workshop Podcast, where you can write a book and change the world. I'm your host, Kitty Holtz, and this is episode 191, When Your Life Depends on It, an interview with Brad Borkin, coming to you on Thursday, April 9th, 2020. It isn't very often that I interview someone who's written a book that I think probably I will never ever be interested in reading this book. <laughs> But I can't say that Arctic and Antarctic explorers and um, how how they did their exploring is at all on my radar, except that once I started talking to the author of, and yes, it's the name of the episode as well, the name of the book is When Your Life Depends On It. By Brad Borken. When I started talking to Brad, I was like, okay, wait, that sounds really interesting. And that sounds really interesting. And by the end of the interview, I was like, I have to go check out your book. This sounds way more interesting than I thought it was going to be. So there you go. There's another reason why now might be a good time to try the kind of book that you think, I don't know that that's really for me because who knows, it might be. Maybe the whole genre, maybe just that one book. But when Brad and I were talking about his book and the sorts of things that he was writing about these explorers and how they learned to survive in ways that I, in a way, sort of can't even imagine, like they didn't even have any way to contact the people at the base camp to let them know they had a problem or they'd run out of food or someone was sick or like there was just nothing. It was either you're going to get to base camp and live or or not, which sounds terrifying. Why would anyone want to be that kind of explorer? Listen to this interview. It is so interesting. Honestly, I was like, okay, that's super cool. So That's the one thing I wanted to tell you. This this interview is going to be more interesting than you think if you think that you're not interested in Arctic and Antarctic explorers. And if you are interested, then I think you're really going to be interested. But also, I wanted to just kind of have some encouraging things to say to you because uh, an awful lot of people who are listening to this um, are probably listening to this somewhere in a shut-in sort of situation where you are staying at home, maybe only getting to go out to go to the grocery store, or I've heard an awful lot of people have been told they can go out for one hour of exercise per day, which... Yeah. Sounds a little bit like prison. So what I'm hoping is that what's happening here where I live is also happening where you live. The sun came out about a week and a half ago and the temperatures finally going up. It got up to 57 degrees today uh, by lunchtime, I think, which means it'll probably be maybe 58 or 59 before the temperatures go down again. And I'm sorry, I don't know what that is in Celsius, but I would say it's got to be 12 or 15 <laughs> um, anyway it was nice and it's sunny and it's just beautiful and we took our bikes into the brand new bike shop that's just around the corner from our building and we had all the spring things that needed to be done like I needed a new gear shifter because mine was rusting and um, and I got a basket yay <laughs> so um, I was just really excited because it's spring when your bike is ready to ride, right? Um, Unless you're Swedish, in which case your bike is ready to ride all the time and you ride your bike all the time. But I don't know that I'll ever be quite that Swedish. So (laughs) I think I'm just going to stick to spring, summer, and fall, not the winter. Anyway, I hope that you are finding some great reminder of spring, good weather, sunshine. Maybe your one hour of exercise can be bike riding. Maybe it's walking or running. I plan on going running tomorrow. Finally, I finally started exercising in my living room. Uh, My husband and I are going to take turns doing it because neither one of us really wants the other person to see us exercising and huffing and puffing. And yeah, anyway, it's just our thing. (laughs) So I'm super excited about that because then I'm going to feel a lot more comfortable eating all I want for Easter. (laughs) Easter. We bought a ham already. I'm going to put it in the crock pot because I'm not very good at you know, cooking stuff. Uh, I haven't decided what we're going to have for side dishes, but I did move here with a Costco-sized bag of Marie Callender's corn muffin mix. I'm very, very excited to have Marie Callender's corn muffins for Easter dinner. <laughs> uh, and then we'll actually be at church helping to create the streaming service Easter morning. So, um, that won't really be relaxing, but uh, hopefully it will be a blessing to other people. So that's what I'm doing. Oh, and I'm, I sat out on my balcony a couple of days ago. Actually, I'm recording this on Tuesday. I think it was just yesterday on Monday of this week. I sat on my balcony, in my camp chair, in the sun, in my t-shirt and jeans. And I had my jacket nearby in case, you know, I'm just imagining things and it's really not warm enough to be sitting here. But I sat outside for like a half an hour, 45 minutes reading, and I felt like the world was a wonderful place again. (laughs) So just a few things that I hope if you are trying to think of how you can... Not have cabin fever, like maybe thinking of delicious, wonderful things to cook for Easter or Easter weekend. I know some of you uh, usually go away and maybe to someone else's house or on a little mini vacation for Easter, and I'm sorry if you can't do that, but you can think about what other things you could do. and definitely, I hope it involves sunshine because it's supposed to rain on Easter here. But anyway, I just wanted to throw out some bits of encouragement. Hopefully, it's hitting a good place with you. Also, a little shout out to my niece, to my niece Ashley, because today it's her birthday. Happy birthday, Ashley! I don't think that she probably listens to my podcast, um, but I'm going to tell her that I wished her a happy birthday on the podcast. So maybe she'll get this far. I hope that you enjoy the show. Seriously, totally interesting and might even give you some ideas for um, how you're thinking about living your life right this second and maybe how you are thinking about some things that are going on in your story. I don't know, but uh, I think it could be good. Also, I mentioned in the interview that I listened to the sample of the audiobook and it was really really good so i strongly urge you to look up the audiobook for when your life depends on it because i'm pretty much 100% sure i'm going to buy it cuz i just i really like the sound of the way that the person was reading the book kind of sounded like a um like a national geographic but without any video <laughs> so i don't know i think it's going to be good that's it, I'm gonna stop talking. The sun is like increasing my, my battery charge inside my head so that I feel like I'm just like, talk, 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 just because I'm so happy, because I have sunshine. I hope you have some too. I hope you have a fabulous day. Um, do something nice for yourself, be kind to yourself, and um, try to get a little bit of writing done this weekend. I hope you have a great day, here's the interview. Today's guest is Brad Borkin. Brad has a graduate degree in decision sciences from the University of Pennsylvania and has a fascination in how people and businesses can make better decisions. Brad is the author of When Your Life Depends On It and has presented at business and Antarctic conferences, appeared on cable TV in the U.S. and on internet talk radio programs. His talks focus on leadership, Teamwork and winning against the odds. He is based in London and is a fellow of the Royal Geographic Society. Welcome, Brad.
1: Hello, Kitty. Thank you for having me on this, on your show.
0: This is so exciting. You and I met at the uh, Mark Dawson self-publishing live event a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, uh, actually, right. yes, we didn't we didn't meet in person though, did we?
1: No, we didn't. We didn't. It's just from connecting on the on the website. Yeah, yeah. I saw you had that podcast series, so I reached out.
0: Yeah, yeah. I love that group. It's like my favorite group of people.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's lovely. Love, wonderful group. Yes.
0: Oh, okay, so first of all, my listeners know that I am a neuroscience geek. Um, I even love zombie shows because I like to say, I love brains. <laughs> <laughs> so, so when I read you have a graduate de- degree in decision sciences, I was like, that is super cool. Just give us a quick idea. What is that?
1: So that's a good question. It's, it's the study of not just how people make decisions, but how do businesses make decisions and how do you use, back when I was studying it back, how do you use computers to help businesses make better decisions? But it, it, it morphs very closely into personal decision-making. And because to a great degree, businesses make decisions because the leaders are making certain decisions or have certain goals. And, uh, and then it's, it's, it's interesting because I've taken it beyond that and where my focus becomes more towards how do people deal with goals how do you and then how do you deal with adversity risk and danger and how do you deal with what happens when you don't make your goals
0: right okay the last two books that i've been reading uh one just for pleasure and one for pleasure but also i was interviewing the author uh, happened to be romantic suspense and i was just uh telling uh, offline, I I didn't want to say, no, I think I, I think I did say it on the interview. I just didn't say what the name of the author or the book that I was frustrated with this one author was creating decisions for her characters where people are shooting at them. They're, um, they're for the moment safe and they have 17 pages of sex. And I'm like, really? People are shooting at you. But in this newer book, a uh, younger author, I don't know if that makes any, any difference. Um, and the way that she did it was when they think that they've got the bad guy and that there is no more shooter, then they have a date night. But then when somebody shoots at them again, they're like, okay, we didn't obviously catch the shooter. I'm like, okay, see that makes much more sense to me. So I love the idea that decision science is actually, is sort of something that I should know more about as a fiction author as well.
1: Well, yes, absolutely. It's 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 fascinating how people make decisions. And, and I think this is why I'm gravitate towards the Antarctic explorers is because they were making decisions in this wonderful isolation. They didn't have access to, communication out to the outside world and they really had to make decisions on their own. So it's really fascinating in that context, but it's fascinating. I'm as fascinated by that as I am in why do we buy the products we buy? Why do we, what ads work, what, what ads don't work? Why do people uh, have the relationships they have? How do they meet? How do they uh, you build careers and, and, and things like that? So so all those types of decisions are fascinating.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Now you got me thinking as you were talking about how all those things, things that I've done in my own life, I'm like, oh yeah. Oh, but that kind of decision is different from that kind of decision. That's so interesting. Yes. Yeah.
1: but But they're all sort of interconnected in how you deal with, with either, either seeing things like goals or, or adversity and, and, and what happens when you hit a goal, don't hit a goal. How do you, how do you celebrate goals? How do you deal with, with missing goals. And, and I think that, and that's so tied up in, in Antarctica that, that I, it it was just the perfect platform for talking about decision-making to try to get some of that out because you've got men in adverse situations dealing with, with nature and dealing with wanting to do science and wanting to do discovery and exploration. At the same time, you've put them into this incredibly challenging situation and, and, that could easily descend into fist fights and murder and mayhem and sabotage. And yet at the same time, the these six expeditions that, that I look at in the book and my co-author and I look at in the book has a lot to do with why didn't these expeditions do that? Why did these, why were these expeditions so successful in in this environment? And hoping that people can draw from that lessons for modern life, whether you're building characters in fiction or whether you're dealing with your own the 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 modern world and how we see it it's, yeah. it's it's all of this is wrapped up in the same same thing
0: right okay so let's back up just a little bit give us the brief like how did you get so interested in uh antarctic explorers well i guess arctic and antarctic explorers and then like bring us up to uh when you started researching your book and then let's just yeah let's just see where the conversation goes because it sounds so interesting
1: oh well thanks yeah it it, i hopefully hopefully it's an interesting story my mother worked at the local public library a few days a week and and i grew up in in new jersey and and the so after school i was probably was eight years old or something i'd have to go wait at the library and i was bored senseless as any eight-year-old boy would be wander around the library like well, what am i going to read when i gonna read it's like about mid past couple hours till she can take me home and i go play basketball with my friends so it's like until that time i was like wandering around like, like oh this is just the dullest thing on earth until i picked up an antarctic book about shackleton and scott and these explorers and the I was just absolutely fascinated by it from then on. Uh, and and it was looking at what, I guess what fascinated me was, was I'm not a risk taker in my, I'm not, a, I'm, though I've traveled around the world, I've been to Antarctica and I've done all this, I, I wouldn't class myself as, as adventuresome uh, in, or brave in the way these explorers were. And when you add, so here are people very different from me. That was quite interesting to me. And, and then the idea that they would actually go to a spot on earth that is no different than any other spot within hundred, 200 miles. I can certainly understand why someone wants to climb a mountain that you can say, there's the top of the mountain, I'm going to go climb to the top of the mountain, but to say, I'm going to go to some point that's covered with snow and it's going to look no different than any other point covered with snow for the next 200 miles. is like, why? And then had they just waited... So they're going in 1903. Earliest expeditions were around 1901, 1903. Airplanes were just being invented by the Wright brothers, and then the aviation. They, could, they waited 10 or 20 years. They could have just flown there and save themselves all this right. angst and, and and life and death and challenge and, and the whole thing was just like like uh, fascinating. And then you throw in the mix of you know from a young age being interested in advertising and why do people do what they do. You throw the whole mix in, and, and that's what what got me caught up in the whole
0: wow kind of thing. So on the one hand, in your personal life, you're just interested in in these expeditions and you're reading it on in, in your personal life. But then um going to college and studying and, and starting work and stuff, in a way, you're looking at the same sorts of ways that the brain is working. Is that right?
1: Well, exactly. Yes, exactly. And so it's how how do not so much in the neuroscience of of the brain, the chemistry of the brain, but more in just how, what do people do? More from the psychology point of view, why do you do what you do? And and, yeah. and, and that side. And then, and then to bring us a bit forward towards the book was about 2012, I think was the, well, Captain Scott died in 1912 in Antarctica on the way back from the South Pole. They were second to the South Pole. They'd been beaten by Amundsen uh, and they died on the way back. And so they're, Captain Scott and his team are quite big heroes in, in uh, the UK. And, and there was a conference that was being uh, happening, a hundred year anniversary of Scott's death happening in Plymouth, England. And I decided to go to it. And I thought this, you know, I'm sitting on a train going down to Plymouth thinking, this is just the dumbest thing I've ever done. It's like, don't, who's going to be there? Like what sort of people? And, but I'd met the most wonderful, wonderful people. And the art community, I've met descendants of the of the famous explorers i met authors of people books i'd read i met historians met professors met just the most wonderful people and they were very welcoming and they're like you know everyone's like got their little thing about why they were there and they and people and they're saying like why are you here i'm like i'm just interested and they, and they were they were buying me drinks and they were like it's just like i was just became one of the, one of them And it's, and i never thought i'd be part of the community other than like a almost like a tourist to that community and and what happened was in fact i probably didn't buy a drink The whole, you know the <laughs> in, in london you, you in britain you'd, you'd buy drinks for people as you you know, join a group you buy drink. i probably never bought a drink for anyone the whole time because everyone's like so friendly they're like oh come on and so and i'm not a big drinker but it's <laughs> just very welcoming and but over the time of going to antarctic conferences and sitting through lectures and and meeting these people, I realized no one's ever put the two together and said, said well, people have written books about the bi- biographies of the explorers. They've written fictionalized accounts of the expeditions. They've written um, about the expeditions. Our book is about one aspect of the expeditions, like the equipment or the food or uh, something about one one small part of an expedition or the science of the expedition. But no one ever, I thought, I'm sitting here in the audience, time after time, I'm thinking, no one's ever written about what is really at the heart of these, which is the life and death decisions, and that's the most exciting, because yeah. for the most part they came near death all the time, and yet very rarely ever died. Wow. You see, like like this is literally if you look across these expeditions, they literally are like each things real. It's like a thriller story. Like you can you couldn't make this up if you were writing fiction. So it's like uh, so so to say. Well, actually, why not? If, if I proposed the idea to a couple authors to say, could we co-write the, co-write the book? And they're like, yeah, it's an interesting idea, but I don't necessarily co-write things. I thought, well, I know some Antarctic history. I work full-time, so how do I put this all together? And that's when I happened to be at an Antarctic conference and met my co-author, David Herzl, and he had written a few books, and and, uh, and I just proposed the idea and took a risk. I just said, I, you know, I'll take a big risk. Wow. If he's interested.
0: yeah. And so, okay, so because we are a community of uh, writers listening in, um, I have to ask, so the first question, once you guys decided that you were going to do it, like, how did you do co-writing? I assume that he was still in California, you were still in London?
1: Great, exactly. Yeah, hopefully this will be interesting to the listeners, because uh, it was, the, the book was my idea, and at first, it's like, I met David. What happened at the conference was because conferences are fairly small, so they went around the room and they said, "Okay, everyone has like five minutes to stand up and talk about what they're interested in." So I was sitting near the front. I'm um, stood up and I said, "I'm interested in decision making and why they went and all this stuff." But I'm like a nobody. I'm like, "Yeah, there are book collectors who you know, people who have you know spend more on a book than I spend on my cars. Like they're like literally like just yeah, and and people who are literally the grandchildren of of Scott and Shackleton and you know it's, it's just amazing." Amazing group of people, and um, and so they're going around the room, and everyone's talking about what they're what they're interested in. And they get back. David's sitting near the back of the room. I'd never met him before, and he goes, he goes. Actually, I'm interested in what Brad's interested in. <laughs> so at the first break, I went up to him and said, I want to write this book. And are you interested? And I said, I'll send you all my notes. I just don't know you. I don't know you from anybody. But I'm so keen to do this. And and it was taking a risk. And I sent him all my notes and all my ideas, and I didn't hear from him for a month i was like david's pretty quiet actually and and so uh so i thought oh i can't believe it. i've just given away all my ip but i thought well you, unless you take a risk you you you've got you got to trust people and you gotta mm-hmm. assume and and david's like hey i was you know now we're we're best friends and now he's like he's like yeah i was I was interested from day one but uh but he never told me that <laughs> so it's like so but but about a month later uh i thought why well, won't chase him too much I think well, you know let's just see what happens and and a month later he sends me a chapter that's you know uh uh 10 pages long single space it was just an amazing amount of work that went into almost none of that probably ended up in our book but it was like just the thought process was like he's been i have been thinking about this ever since you ever proposed the idea to me it's like and and he's just and, but over time we developed a working pattern and uh, and it was great it's been and we're working on our second book so
0: Wow. Okay. So do you do, you, um, you must do it, probably do email back and forth.
1: It, we are very old fashioned in, in that respect because we uh, do email, we do Skype and we do, we, we write in word mm-hmm. and we trade, but we, we, we configured the book on Excel. And I think, so what, so I, this will be, I think, quite interesting to, to your audience as well, which is my, My approach was we live in different countries. The first thing we could do, everyone's like, "Do you have a contract?" I'm like, "Why do you want a contract? We don't have anything to have a contract about." (laughs) We could get international lawyers talking to each other for days on end, spending thousands of dollars and thousands of pounds, arguing over who has rights of what when we don't have anything. Yeah. So I just said, David, like, you know, we just have to trust each other. We'll just like you know write a memo of understanding, and we never even barely did that. We're like, yeah, let's just start writing. Let's just (laughs) trade ideas, and we spent three months working on the table of contents. Literally, it was like the um, the old fashioned story of Abe Lincoln, or uh, or you know, or. uh, Something that I think someone said. Well, you know, well, if you had eight hours to cut down a tree, what would you do? And he said, "I would spend my first six hours sharpening the saw." <laughs> yeah. The, or whatever. Whoever said that? I'm not sure who said that. But but that concept was sitting there, going like, "Dave, let's 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 work on the table of contents." And here and go back and forth. What's in? What's out there? So many great stories to choose from. So many expeditions. So many people. What? How do you create a thrilling book focused on life and death decisions? And where? And I want to write about mountain climbing. I want to go broaden it out into life and death decisions on, in, on, on Everest, on, on, in, uh, in South America. And so it, it's, and he's like, no, no, let's stick to what we can do and, and our, our expertise and, and our focus. And he kept me on the straight and narrow and we never, we wrote the book, printed it, put it on Amazon. And maybe half a year later said, maybe we should have a contract. <laughs> it's like we probably do have a contract somewhere it's like we did sort of like turn our memo of understanding into a contract either you know it's neither of us are in it for the money we're in it for to get the antarctic stories out and yeah uh, and so i think it's 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 good to take risks like that
0: yeah and to trust yeah. people and to, to, yeah
1: you may get burnt sometimes but I, it's it's worked out well for david and i
0: yeah yeah, I know I have heard stories about people who took, took risks and got burned, but um, but I have to say that um, I just have kind of a Pollyanna Mary Sunshine personality where I'd love to hear the stories where we took a risk, our focus was on the story rather than the business slash money part, and, and it worked out. I, it just makes me happy that, you know, people... There are far more good, trustworthy people in the world than the stories you hear about the ones that are less so.
1: Exactly. I mean, David Turn went from being a complete stranger when I first met him to being someone, you know, that's a lifelong friend. And the same with same with our audiobook narrator, Dennis Kleinman. I set out when I went to do the audiobook. I'd been going to the the London Book Fair.
0: Oh, have yeah, you been to yeah. the London Book Fair? Did well, you... I was supposed to go for the first time okay. this year. Yeah.
1: Okay. Okay, great. <laughs> the um uh, yeah, it's a great event, and and to listen to to people speak, like Mark Dawson and 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 L.J. Ross and all the various various authors speaking there. And this one person stood up and said, you know what, the the difference between based on studies, difference between successful authors and less successful authors, successful authors have audiobooks. So I'm like writing notes, and this is back in like in 2016, or you know, Dave and I still work the, the the still working on the manuscript, and and am like I gotta have an audiobook, I have an audiobook, and and so once we wrote the book, I thought, wow, I've got a microphone. I can record my voice, read the book into a microphone. How difficult is that? And <laughs> I read like less than two paragraphs. I thought, this is really difficult. This is, this is r- super difficult. Plus, what does an Antarctic explore in the early 1900s sound like? Right. And if I can just show the cover of my book for a second, yeah. just to show the, the photograph on the, the cover, these men pulling a sledge across the the Antarctic tundra, um, and and doing that for hundreds and hundreds, and hundreds of miles was really really challenging difficult they're you know I'd take tough stir, sturdy men with deep husky voices, well that's not me it's like yeah, yeah. I got to <laughs> find someone who has this sort of voice and and it was it was it was that and again taking a risk and and, and I listened to hundreds of voices and and um, and then chose Dennis. And Dennis has turned into a lifelong friend and, and, and again, taking a risk, but saying, you know, this guy has the voice and everything else is, is secondary to if he shares the same passion as, as Dave and I do. And it, it really came, came down to feeling like the whole process of building a team of people who had the same passion, it had nothing to do with money. It had to do with, with how do we get these stories told? Yeah, and uh, and are the editors who worked on the book and the uh, uh, book designer, every, everybody who who's engaged in the book has been. I felt like I'm building a team of people. And, yeah, and
0: and as it turns out, your audio book was up for a major award, right?
1: Yes, that's right. That was the most amazing thing. Dennis is like he he reads the whole book, and 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 I'd encourage any of of the authors listening to produce audio books, but yeah, I'd be very cautious about using your own voice to produce audio because uh, yes it's cheaper but if you can find the right voice it makes such a difference and i mean you know because again our book is about people who are who are norwegian explorers there's there's antarctic terms there's eskimo terms there's you know dennis researched how to say all these various words and things like that it was you know so you know uh they uh but what so Dennis reads the whole book and we're going through chapter by chapter. I'm listening to the, his replays and we're correcting things and, and at the end he goes, you know, I really understand your book now. I really get it. So let me record the beginning again and submit it for an award. And he submits it to the Voice Arts Awards. So Voice Arts is like Grammys or Oscars. Voice Arts is, is the um, it's the awards for TV commercial voiceovers, for movie trailer voiceovers. for I mean, These are all big name many big-name actors, not just voice actors, right? big-name actors, and we end up in the finalists. So, we're, so and so it's like the Grammys or the Oscars, we end up in Hollywood at an event with Sigourney Weaver is oh. the host and, and Van Jones and all these celebrities, and we're in there in the history category, and we're, in the, we're up against uh, four other books, one of which is up for a Pulitzer Prize, uh, all were on the New York Times bestsellers list. We're self-published with maybe 26, at that point, I think we had about 26 Amazon reviews, maybe sold a couple thousand copies, up against, all, every other book was on the New York Times bestseller list, published by a big name publisher, audiobook produced, you know, in some cases, audiobooks produced by well-known actors. Wow. And, and we're up there for, for Dennis' voice narration on, on the audiobook, and we didn't win. Wow. He case I say, we didn't win, but it was the most amazing red carpet, it was a red carpet gala event in, at Warner Brothers Studios in Hollywood. And
0: wow. It
1: just, just, but it's, it's the, it was the, just, it was dumb. there was a lot of dumb luck in it, but there was a bit of you know, trusting I was finding Dennis. It was his vision of what the audiobook would be like. We, we would go back and forth on, um, you know, how do you do an audio book that's all about danger and risk? And I'm like, Dennis, you've got to, like, act this. You've got to, like, you know, I'm coming up to a, you know, the guy falls into a crevasse, right? It's like, so he's hanging by this rope. So chapter two, you've got this uh, explorer. Literally, he, the story is, he's, his companions, he's with two other companions. Uh, They're pulling sledges. They have two sledges, both being pulled by dogs. And the idea was because it's very, there are lots of crevasses, and crevasses can be covered over with a, what's called a snow lid. So it can actually be covered by snow, and you can basically walk across the snow and fall into the crevasse. And you're, What saves you from death, basically, if you're lucky, is the sledge doesn't fall in behind you. So using the British term sledge, which is what they pile all their supplies on, you're, you fall in, but you're, you're saved by your harness. So you're done down maybe 15 feet, and your companions didn't pull you out, And then they had two sledges and they thought, well, we'll be smart. We'll put the second sledge, the first sledge has the less important supplies. So the first team goes and there are three of them. So one person with, with uh, two people with with the dogs sort of trying to figure out what's the safe route and they see a snow sled, a snow lid, and they realize there's grass there and sort of trying to wave to the other guy. And as they turn around to wave to the other guy, he's falling through a snowlit into a crevasse with the sledge, with all the dogs, with all the valuable supplies, including the tent, most of their food, and uh, and so these two guys are left on the ice with with almost no, not that much food. They uh, uh, have to do like a makeshift tent, and and, and they um, continue on, but they're both the dogs die, and and they, they're able to kill the dogs, but they end up eating the um, dog livers which are filled with vitamin A and, and which are poisonous to humans. And so the, wow. they're slowly, the, the two men are slowly dying just from the poisoning in, in their bodies. And and they're, uh, and then the, one of the men dies. And so Mauston's on his own. And so this whole chapter, which is written in about a page and a half, two pages, he, he's on his own, he's trying to get back. He has no, of course, throughout that time that no one had any communication back to base camp or anything like that. So he's on his own. And he falls through a crevasse, luckily only saved by the harness and the sledge not falling in after him. And it's like, how do you tell that story you know, on an audiobook? book? Yeah. And, and I can get all excited and, and talk about that when I'm talking about this. Wow. Have,
0: okay. I, well, let me just say that I've never been interested in this kind of stuff at all, but I'm thinking, oh, I just got an audio subscription for my birthday, which was a couple of days ago. Maybe I have to read the, or listen to this book.
1: Okay. Well, I hope so. hope so. Yeah. I hope so. <laughs> but Dennis is like, you don't act it because I can, I, in, you know, I, obviously in the flexion of my voice, I'm going like, to get very excited about this story. And Dennis is like, your reader has to infer that from the audio book. You don't write in bold and italics, you know, danger, danger, oh, I fell a crevasse. You write in standard fonts. And the 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 reader interprets for themselves what that situation might have been like for Mawson falling into this crevasse, wondering how am I gonna get myself out in this weakened state. And and this is the the beauty of what Dennis did was, was to take this and turn it into something that's exciting at a very low-key level
0: yeah
1: and we're using the words to convey the emotion and not drama to convey the emotion yeah and i think that's why we end up in 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 the in the finals because it's just a remarkable rendition of these incredible stories
0: Wow. Yeah. I listened to the audio sample before I interviewed you and I was like, wait, that's the end of the sample. I mean, it's, it's so well done.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So Dennis was great, but that's, I think for, for, for us, it was, it was saying, how do you, how do you take risk? How do you, how do you build a team of people and how do you do various things that sort of get you one step further for getting the book known?
0: Yeah. So. Now, <clears throat> correct me if I'm wrong, but I think at the beginning you said that in general, you don't consider yourself a person who, ta- who takes risks. Is that right?
1: <laughs> well, I I guess I take risks, but I take, I'm I like, I'm the sort of person who goes to the airport and will check the board for when the flight goes every 20 minutes, right? That's yeah. the sort of risk I take, right? <laughs> so as opposed to the person's like, oh, whatever. It's like when the plane goes I'll be sure to be at the gate at the right time. I'm so I'm like more of a uh controlled decision maker, I think, when it comes down yeah. to to risk. But it's uh but yeah, they, in Antarctica, they would just be like, well, we'll just drop these six guys off uh, you know on this coast far from base hundreds of miles from base camp, and we'll come back with the ship and pick them up in six weeks' time. Yeah. And and if and if the ship can't get back to them because it's all iced over, well, they'll figure out something faster yeah. there. And I'll be like, you know, and no communication of let them know whether ship can get there or not, other than the, them sort of being able to say, oh, gee, it's all iced over. We're, we're in deep trouble now. It's like right. like, wow, that is just like, that, that bravery or risk taking is just a-
0: Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, so this, um, obviously I'm totally engaged in your story right now. So this really amazing story and these people who are so unlike certainly me and my personality, um, but then you also have this decision-making focus in what you do for work. And now, you know, in the 20th, 21st century, it seems like the one thing that we can count on is that things are constantly changing. And so we're always in this new position that, that I suspect, having not lived my grandmother's life, but I suspect my grandmother lived the first half or three quarters of her 99 years without having to experience quite so many changes in the world as I did. I mean, I would say for sure the first 40 years of her life couldn't have been as many changes as it seems like I've probably experienced in the last 40 years of mine. So how do we take, um, how do we take, I don't even know if it's the right word to say lessons, um, keys and ideas from other people who somehow managed to make good decisions when it was, I didn't, I never really thought about it before. I've never really thought about uh, explorers in this way. But if it's constantly, most decisions are going to affect whether you live or die. Like how can we take that and apply it to our ever-changing kind of – Like sometimes it's very exciting because we've got new uh, electronic toys to play with. Like I'm definitely one of the girls that if it's between uh, getting diamonds for an anniversary present or a new electronic toy, I want the electronic toy. (laughs) Um, But on the other hand, there are days when you're just overwhelmed with the amount of change. Like you just figured out how to do something and it's already changed. How can some of the things that you... Um, understand about these early people who had none of the techie things that we have now and the 21st century software world that you live in and how can we apply some of these things to our own lives to live a little bit more peaceful a little bit more calmly is is that something that you can help us with Uh,
1: yes I think so because actually when I think about the book and and and, uh, my vision for the book was never to write a history book it was actually to write some combination of genres that was take using history as a springboard to helping people in modern life, make better decisions in their personal lives and in their, in their business lives based on these stories. And, and so it's it's looking at history in a different way. It's not looking at history from a point of view of dates and, they went three miles on that day and five miles on that day. And they did this and they ate this for dinner or for lunch. it's more trying to say, how do you, how do you tell the story? And then say, what do we learn from? What do we learn from Mawson falling into a crevasse and how he gets out of it? And um, I don't know if I can say specifically how exactly to live for, deal with lots of change in, in our modern lives, but certainly the explorers were very goal focused and yet at the same time, what's fascinating is they never achieved any of their goals. The, 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 in the, these six expeditions, not one explorer ever achieved their primary goal.
0: What?
1: And yet they all became <sighs> successful. And it's, it's actually wow. takes, takes business. You said, you, 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 you told me earlier before you, we started the, the thing about you, you, your studies in at the Wharton school
0: yeah. and,
1: and. Business school teaches you set goals, attain your goals, you'll be successful. So goal attainment is success, or success is goal attainment, and that's you know that's really what it's all about. And and uh, I'm trying to say to people, it's not success is more elusive and more complicated than just goal attainment. And we especially when you look at the stories of the early Antarctic explorers, are trying to say, well, how do you, what can you learn into modern life with things cha- things changing all the time? Uh, they had certain. Th- things that they did very well they everyone on the team knew what the goal was this mm-hmm. is what something and bought into that goal and and uh the the leaders led from the front which is all quite interesting they never were in the back like generals going like oh you guys go off to war. they were literally at the front scott shackleton at watson amundsen it all led from the front and uh and i think something for modern life for, I think, especially given the, the environment we live in right now in today with the day we're recording this, the, the, the world events happening right now, I think it's about being part of a team and everything that they did on these expeditions, people felt they are part of a team. They're on a team with a big team. There's teams of three people, teams of five people, teams with, at different points, they break out into these various teams and do things. And we live in our modern lives, maybe all right now, these sci isolating things, but we're part of teams yeah. and we're part of the team, the, the Mark Dawson team, or we're part of the, uh, the team of, of, of authors or I'm part of the team in the Antarctic community or, you know, we're family teams and, and to think of ourselves as part of teams, I think helps a lot, even if we're not actually meeting those teams, except through like this, through, through a zoom mechanism, it's yeah. that, that sense of camaraderie that we're in it. And we're all in it and we're gonna go get through this. And I think that you know that that helps get through through change. And they yeah. face change. The early explorers face a lot of change because you had constantly changing weather a blizzard could come on very suddenly, trap you in your tent for five days. So you talk about self-isolation, all of a sudden that could happen. So like, so, wow. So they'd be like, okay, now you got you know three guys who you know in one tent or four guys in a tent. And,
0: yeah. yeah. Holy cow. Wow. All right. So that's really interesting because I'm thinking about um, my husband and I met when we were 19 and 20 and we were married when we were 22 and we're celebrating our 30th wedding anniversary in a a little bit more than a month. And we have people asking us all the time or, or saying things that is Underlying the question, how did how did you do it? Like, how are you not only still married, like people are married, but um, but a lot of times we will be someplace and people that we don't know are like, are you guys newlyweds? We're like, no, (laughs) we just we just really like each other. And but um, but I'm thinking about what you said. Like, so our marriage has definitely always been a team. We've always kind of felt that it was uh, him and me against the world. Like we, we didn't have good role models in our own families. Um, we didn't really know. I'm trying to think if we even knew anyone to, to look at as a role model when we were newly married and we had to always be like, okay, this is what the two of us were going to stand together for this and for this. And I'm thinking about what you said about success. And then there's a million things that we didn't achieve and a million other things that happened, where we were like, wow okay god that was unexpected and a major blessing and other things that were incredibly difficult and yet i would absolutely classify this uh, this 30 year journey as a success even though there's a ton of things that we we still haven't actually achieved and i'm realizing that that can be like If I'm hearing what you're saying right, because I'm thinking, what a great healthy way to look at your your work team. Like if you weren't all, almost every job I've been in, my team was all competing against each other, and we were never pulling together, and it was just so frustrating. It's why I always would say I totally disliked working in corporate America and every kind of job that I had because I always seemed to work in teams where we're competing rather than working together. Is that something that you help businesses with at all?
1: Uh, well, certainly when I do book, book talks and I do talks at, at, at business, I, I, I spend a lot of time talking about teams because it's, like I was saying, that the Antarctic Explorers were really good at teamwork. And one of the things that they did in teams that I, I think we discovered when we were working on the book was that there was always a second in command on any team, even a team of three people in this first expedition was um, Scott Wilson and, and Shackleton at that point was a junior member of Scott's expedition in 1903. And they, they, although they didn't have the skills to get to the South pole on this big scientific expedition with, with, I think they had about 40 men. Uh, one of the aims was to say, well, we need to learn how to, if anyone's ever going to get to the South pole, we need to learn how to sledge across the terrain and yeah. pull sledges and and work with, Dogs and and uh, other means of, of of moving goods across the terrain, and and uh, and in that team was Scott, Captain Scott, who was the leader. Edward Wilson, who was a doctor, a painter, a um, scientist, was the second in command. And Shackleton was a junior member. So you got three man team, and yet you did have a junior member. And almost, I think, whenever you we looked at, Ant- Antarctic, Teams, there always seem to be either a clearly defined second in command, or everyone knew this was a second in command, even though it wasn't clearly defined. Yeah. And we don't do that in business. And I think that makes a bit. When I've seen this done in business, it makes a big, big difference to people pulling together because um, it's it's it just gives a different dynamic in the team. And I yeah. Think, you know, unfortunately, if you didn't have that experience, it's, I, I fortunately yeah. I have I have had that experience. Uh, just by dumb luck being in as part of a team that where we did have a second in command and it worked really well.
0: Yeah, I'm thinking about my husband's current team right now and I'm like, oh yeah, no, because I, I know that my husband goes to this person or he goes to that person and he knows, you know, which one gets to have the final word or which one can just tell him this is what you should do next without having to ask the person Uh, who maybe is the the first-in-command kind of person. Okay, this is really interesting. So then also um, you were talking about from a marketing perspective, like you and I are both self-published, so... I think um, of the people that I've talked to who are traditionally published, a lot of people just feel really lucky with their team or okay with their team or unlucky with their team, but I never really get the feeling that they feel like there's anything they can do to change or improve their team. Like it's kind of already been set for them. But in self-publishing, I'm always thinking about, um, did this, uh, like, uh, just as an example, you know, I I would get a great cover from a cover designer, but I felt, It was just too difficult to work with her. It wasn't easy, and it made me just not really want to work with her. Even though the cover was awesome, you know. Whereas um, there might be somebody else who I love the way that this editor does this, and maybe she doesn't do this, but I love the way she does this, and it makes me be like, no, I I definitely want to work with her because I think she brings out the best in me. So I get to kind of constantly be um, rethinking my team, deciding if I'm going to reform my team, but. Uh, what I have found is that over, um, gosh, 2011 to 20, well, eight years, more than eight years that I have been able to create something where, um, maybe similar to, to to you and your book, the money is actually not the thing that I think about when I think about how much I love my job, because I also love working with these people who I never get to see in person except for every few years. Um, but uh, they just—it makes me feel really good, like we're all pulling together, and it just makes me happy.
1: Yes, exactly. I think being part parts of the team is—it's human nature to be part of teams, and I think this is one of the things that, in the current era that that we're living through, uh, feeling that one's part of a team is is vital at this ta- at this stage, and and we can learn a lot from the Antarctic explorers. I mean, they weren't—they, I—we never hold them up as perfect decision makers. In fact, they made a lot of bad decisions. They're good at recovering from bad decisions. I think that's maybe the key. And maybe that's the key in your marriage as well, is that when when you hit a bad decision, what do you do? And and bad decisions can cause people to fall out very rapidly, as opposed to being a unifying thing of, okay, let's you know, what do we do? What what do we do? What's our new goal? What's our new what's our new new approach?
0: Yeah. So Oh, this is exciting. Okay, so we'll just kind of bring it back around to writing for a minute. So sure. I think that you actually gave us a lot of great tips, but if you have anything in particular that you're thinking, um, let, let me just kind of recap the things that I heard you say. Um, definitely, you feel like having an audiobook version, uh, a professional, well done audiobook version of your book is key in this period of time. Um, you also mentioned that for nonfiction, uh, you and your co-writer, David, David, right? David, yes. Um, but you and your co-writer, David, felt very strongly about getting the table of contents right before you started writing.
1: Oh, yes, Absolutely.
0: So let's talk about that for just a little bit, uh, a minute. Um, I don't get a whole lot of nonfiction writers and I always want to give my audience, you know, a little bit more where they can. But can you give us some tips about how um, and feel free to talk about it in terms of of, um, you felt this or David felt that or just like the decisions that you made together Um, when you have so many things that could be part of a great book. How did you keep on focusing it down so that what you ended up with was truly a great book, knowing that you didn't use a ton of really great information?
1: This is, this is interesting because, like, I mean, literally, there are books that are you know two inches thick written about the expeditions. I mean, just to give you an idea, because I have sitting here on my desk. Oh. I've got this is Shackleton's book. There are two volumes. Actually, there's another volume. Just yeah. Too big um two volumes written about the his expedition to get to the south pole and they i I need to uh, before we go i'll have to tell the story about this expedition but this is like how do you turn this into about two pages or three pages of excitement Uh, Uh, and and just for people
0: who are watching only that's got to be four or five inches of big full-size hardcover books yeah
1: uh, probably each one's about three inches of. I mean, this is literally thousand, you know several thousand pages written uh, about the expedition, a multi-year expedition in the Arctic, and that's just one of six expeditions. And each of the expeditions had massive books written about them, and th- not just by uh, the the core team, but each of the, you know many of the people who are on the expeditions have their own books written as well. So how do you summarize all that down into some to turn something that is into a a very exciting story, yeah. and uh, probably it's no different than writing fiction. It's, it's fundamentally you've got to figure out what drives the reader. What are the key things they need to know? And when actually, Dave and I work on this new book now. It's like you know, we're like, uh, and the new book's part of a set in Antarctica, but some of it's not in Antarctica. And 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 saying actually, those names are not important. It's not important who the men are. It's important I'm like what what the story is, but it's not necessarily important all the detail, because if you're trying to tell a story really fast and try to get it really exciting. You can leave it in a lot of detail. If people if you, if you get people interested, they'll go to the internet, they'll go to the, they'll get other books about it and, and read. But I think it's it's getting a story that is is uh, pared down to a stage where it is literally thrilling sentence by sentence by sentence. And that's really what we, we aim to do.
0: Yeah. All right, so that's a great tip that I don't think that I have thought through before. And in fact, one of the things that I look at when I look at some of the nonfiction that I've um, written, um, I have one online class that's in text is about 280 pages, a single space text. It's it's quite detailed because I wanna make sure that if you're looking for detail, you're finding it. But sometimes I'm reading it and thinking, ah, too much detail. So I've actually thought, well, all right, because I do want it to be available to people if they do want it I actually started um, doing it a little bit more oh maybe a little bit more like journalism or I'm hitting the high points in almost bullet point fashion in the beginning so that if you're like that's all I needed you can just move on but then giving more detail almost sort of starting the almost sort of starting again but now adding in all the other things that you might actually still be looking for, I don't know if this is similar to what you're talking about.
1: Yes, yeah, I think it is. It's, it's trying to figure out what fits in, into the book, what's what's critical to the storyline, what what what's key to keep in the book, and I think that was uh, again focusing on the on the table of contents. So I think most of the table of, of our content, table of contents are sort of like a, a statement and a question. It's like Okay, uh, or trying to look at, at I, don't, I can't remember all the, the, oh, the, the great uh, things. I mean, a lot of this was was David's idea with, with on what we're doing on the table of contents. And, and um, uh, so the chapter about Moss and falling into the crevasse was called How Strong Is Your Will to Survive? Where Does Inspiration Come From? So this concept of using questions as sort of leading points to get people into the chapter or get people... Uh, and it also helped to, us to be like, okay, where are we going with that chapter? And using spreadsheets, again, to sort of keep track, okay, so this is the main main story, this is the main key lesson that comes out of it, or the main decision point, or the main, uh, this is the action theme of that, that story. And, and then how do you lay them all out? And, and almost like laying it out on, on, on um, uh, there's one point where with a book, book designer and, and I, laid the entire, all the photographs out on a table and said, is this the right order for the chapters? Because at the start yeah. of each chapter, we had a, we didn't, there's so many wonderful Antarctic photographs. Uh, if I can hold one up, there's, um, this is a picture of a ship in, in the ice. So we, what you're wow. if you're just listening to the podcast on audio, it's it, just a remarkable nighttime photograph of Shackleton's ship uh, trapped in the ice, but done with all this wonderful lighting and it's just very atmospheric photograph but it's like do you put that photo in or do you put photo of men or do you put photos of dogs which are always nice to have the the sledge mm-hmm. dogs or you know the ponies or uh and and we thought well actually at the start of each chapter we'll take one photograph and then our book designer would stylize it this was actually her idea to stylize the photograph so it's not recognizable to a, someone who's an Antarctic expert they'd be like i yeah i know what that's photos of but it's not really a it's not the classical rendition of that photo. And for everybody else, it's like, if we, get, if we excite them about the story and they're, they, they can just Google and find the photographs. There are tons of photographs from the early expeditions, which is wonderful. So it was trying to get that balance of, of what, what do we put in the book and what don't we put in the book and how do you, how do you keep the book uh, tight and concise and, and flowing and, and literally exciting.
0: yeah. So your book designer was, was another person on your team who helped yes, with that. Yes,
1: that's right. That's right. Wow. The, yeah, so one of the th- things was, because uh, uh, you and I talked about this before we started the, the broadcast, was, was another technique that we used was, uh, and, something, and this is where you talk about about well, having a team and you're all working together. Well, I was fighting with my editors. I was determined that the book would have a tone and a flow that would be slightly unconventional, and uh and David had certain terms of phrases that I wanted to keep in the editor kept trying to like like take them out is like um uh we're talking about the science and saying he had this phrase of like adding to the pyramid of knowledge or adding to the pyramid of scientific knowledge or something like that. And the our uh, editor was saying, no, no, you uh, so, that wouldn't be a pyramid. It wouldn't you wouldn't think of it a pyramid because pyramids are like have a top and they're like you know, adding to the base or adding to the top. And she's like, that's not a good, and we're like, no, no, but it just make, it makes sense, right? It, may, it just flowed nicely when you're reading it, it's like we just determined it and just fought to keep our vision. And one of our visions was to have something at the end of each chapter to get the reader to the next chapter. So the next, it's not a story from one to, to another, to another, because in a way it's like, once Mawson falls into the gravas, and I'm not going to spoil it whether he gets out or not, the, uh, the next chapter isn't about what happens next to Mawson is a completely different storyline
0: yeah,
1: and it's completely different decision style and, and, you know, cause, um, and, and, but how do you get the reader to go, okay, yeah, that was exciting. Okay. Now we will get a cup of coffee. I'm trying to like, every time we're like, well, how do you then get them to they're not gonna get a cup of coffee. They're going to grab them to the point of saying, I got to get to the next chapter.
0: Yeah.
1: And, and our editor kept saying, no, no, you got to take that. Every editor, we we had three editors that, um, worked at structural editor and a, a, a copy it, well and then an, a copy editor and at the end David and I finished the whole thing and I gave it to some people and I just, I just the feedback I just got I just thought it this isn't good enough yet and we we went completely back to the drawing board and said we got a whole new editor who had knew nothing about Antarctica nothing about the stories and said Rewrite it, and we're well, not rewrite it for us, but just edit it, and yeah. and and I re- I accepted maybe fifty percent of her changes. I didn't accept all the changes, but, but again, she was she was also saying don't put this stuff at the end. But to me, it was like how the hook to get you from one to the other to the other is chapter from one chapter to another was, was that and 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 my role model. Also, like talking about role models and and inspiration um, was Collins and La Pierre. So I don't know if you know these names. There uh, they wrote *Is Paris Burning*? They wrote, Oh Jerusalem, they wrote, they were, I think they were both journalists and they wrote books about these big historical events. So, Oh Jerusalem is the, the leaving of Palestine by the British uh, in 1948, the formation of Israel. Oh Jerusalem, uh, sorry, is Paris, Paris burning, was, was Hitler going to burn down the bridges of, of Paris? All the bridges were wired with, with explosives when the Germans were leaving, the uh-huh. Nazis were leaving Paris. And he kept calling his, his main guy in Paris saying, his parish burning. Have you blown up all the bridges because he didn't want to destroy the city? He wanted to destroy the city upon leaving. And, and this guy was so enamored with Paris, he just couldn't do it. And <laughs> and this, this incredible incredible books about these historical events. And, um, and they wrote a book called Freedom at Midnight, which is the partitioning of India and Pakistan. I mean, there's wonderful, thick, detailed books about these, these incredible historical events. But every chapter at the end drove you to the next chapter. And I thought yeah. that, is if I ever wrote a book, that's what I want to do. It's like, they just, they were just so good at going. You just couldn't, I mean, literally, if you start any of those, those three books I named, and they have a few others, you cannot stop reading. And they're like 300 pages. They're like this. So, so I thought that I've got to stick to, even if people on the team are saying, don't do this, don't do that. It's like, stick to it. But Dave and I never just, we disagreed on one polar event specifically. And we wrote both of our viewpoints into the book, but uh, we never really disagreed on anything, and most most of the with the editors didn't never disagreed and never disagreed with De- Dennis on anything. So I was like, it's like, uh, so it's it's. But so I think I just having having your vision, and you pray the same. You have your vision, and it's like, you you got to stay to your vision.
0: Yeah. So. Wow. <laughs> this is so interesting. So, I I can't say that I ever thought that I would find your topic interesting, but the way that you present it, I'm like, okay, now I am totally uh, I'm in.
1: <laughs> oh, wow. Oh, great. Yeah, that's it's exciting. It's I mean, it's, it's literally um, just the, it, it, well, the Antarctic stories are really exciting. I mean, I don't want to tell one story, just give listeners just a little bit of insight into an Antarctic story and what you can learn from it for modern-day decision-making. Yeah, right. So Shackleton, uh, so after, as, as I said, he, he's, um, he went out with Scott and Wilson on this first expedition. Shackleton actually gets scurvy on the way back and, they, and almost dies on the way back and gets sent back to England. And so he's like in disgrace. He's basically, uh, he almost died. He was a junior member of the team. Uh, they, they actually didn't reach the mileage they had wanted to get to. They didn't reach the distance they wanted to get to. And he sent back rather than hanging his head in shame and basically drifting off into the into whatever else he was going to do with his life. He's like, he goes back to Britain and starts talking about how great the expedition was and how great Scott was and how great everything was and, and pitching it as, you know, this great adventure. And he then he starts setting up his own expedition. So he spends two years raising money, setting up his own expedition and he, he, and his goal was like, we're going to follow, I'm going to take men down. We're going to do the science. We're going to do all this stuff, but we're also going to head to the South pole and we're going to get to the South pole take a team of four men and we'll have, um, uh, they'll use ponies and, 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 cause that was sort of the way of Trent of rather than dogs, but they were going, and, but they get to a stage and to make a very long story short, basically they get to a stage where they're 103 miles from the South pole and they're running out of food, and they know they're gonna run out of food on the way back. And they have to make a decision. And, and the decision is, what do you do? Do you go forward to get to the South Pole? So this is, in the scheme of the world, back in the early 1900s, there were the big prizes. I'll so put your name in the record books forever. It's first to the South Pole, first to the North Pole, and first to the top of Everest. Well, the North Pole is sort of already being fought for by Cook and Perry and and other adventurers. There was the, uh, no one's getting to the top of Everest. No one had the climbing skills uh, or the equipment to get to the top of Everest. So South Pole was like the big, one of the great big, uh, one of the three big prizes. And here he is, he's literally 103 miles from the South Pole, one of the biggest prizes. He's, you know, this is the King of England, you know, the the, the, the relative England, so the newspapers following this is like, this is big news and he knows they're running out of food. Do you continue forward or do you turn back? So it seems like a binary decision, doesn't it? it seems like, you know, do you go forward and the yeah. and or do you, and risk and hope that you can sort of eke out your supplies to get back, or do you just yeah. say, okay, we're just you know, for safety's sake, we've got to turn around. And and I think this is something that's so instrumental for modern living, which is Shackleton sees a third way, a third alternative. And so often we see we sit in life, we see I've only got two choices, and Shackleton's yeah. like, we're going to walk. We're going to leave the tent and sleeping bags, everything behind. We're going to walk south as far as we can for one day, plant the flag, the British flag, and then we're going to turn around and walk back to our supplies. And then we're going to walk camp overnight, and then we'll start the 700-mile journey back to base camp. So the question to your audience is why? Why would would they do that? And you think, that's crazy. Why would they do that? And and the reason is because you want to cross the 100-mile mark. To be able to say we're not going to achieve our goal, but we're going to achieve something. Yeah. And when we go back to England, at least then we can say, "Hey, we got within a hundred miles of South Pole." Right. And it's such a valuable lesson for modern day living that we 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 face all sorts of adversity, all sorts of challenges. We can miss our goals. You can say, "Oh, I want to you know uh, uh, achieve writing a book and and get it launched by the end of 2020," and you realize, actually. I'm only going to get 75% there. But hey, 75%, maybe, you know, maybe you got 73%, but you say, "Actually, hey, I'm going to sell my At least I'll get 75% and plant my flag. It's yeah. like, then you feel like you've got, you know, you've got something. And I think we, that lesson is so valuable. Yeah. And, and just to wrap up the story, Shackleton, I mean, Shackleton writes to his wife. He says, I thought you'd rather have a live donkey than a dead lion.
0: <laughs> Indeed. So. So yeah, because then um, like, I don't know what happened to him, but like in my, in my story creating mind, I'm like, because if you say, but I got within a hundred miles of it and I live to have another goal and more things that I can do. Like, um, whether it's life and death scenario, like with him, or other scenarios like with us, where, um, okay, well, it turns out that I wasn't able to achieve this goal, but because I decided to not to let myself think that there was only a binary choice, you know, I, I thought of another thing that I wouldn't have done that turned out to be a good choice also.
1: Well, exactly. I mean, I had visions of being like, oh, we'll sell 50,000 copies of the book. It's like, you know, and then I end up in Hollywood at this event with Sigourney Weaver. I'm like... Like, who cares about 50,000 copies of the book? I was like, this is this is a, you know, this may be very different from the goal I set out when, you know, David and I finished the book. And I'm like, oh yeah, we could be able to sell 50,000 in a year. Like, of course we never did. Uh, but the, the you know, but all of a sudden there was new a new, something new that happened. And I think this is where, again, choosing to see what's victory and what's, okay, so we didn't achieve one goal, but we achieved something completely different, but it was sort of exciting in, in the fact that we achieved that. So, yeah, um, so it's sort of taking taking benefits from various things.
0: Brad, I love that. And, and, and always that I knew that there was going to be too much interesting stuff that I was going to have to stop our conversation. But that's such a great place to stop with this idea that no matter what's going on in our lives, in our work life, in our writing life, in our personal life, uh, to remember that there are more choices than we think we see.
1: Yes, Exactly. Exactly.
0: I love it. I love giving people some encouragement and giving them like something new to think about that maybe they haven't been thinking about for a while.
1: Yes, absolutely. And that's, that's really the goal of the book. The goal of the book is not to be prescriptive and say, these are the lessons that are from the, these stories. It's actually to get people to think about is, you know, one of my inspirations was Malcolm Gladwell. I don't know if you've ever read. Oh,
0: I love Malcolm Gladwell. (laughs) It's
1: trying to be in that style of book. There'd be like, like get people to think about, to think about, uh, life and challenges and risk and danger and exploration and science and all this stuff. And think about, uh, th- this as ways to learn for how do I, how do I interpret some of this for my own life and my own style? Yeah. You know, what can I take away from these incredible stories of, of, you know, uh, people trekking across frozen tundra to, to achieve things, you are like, okay, this this it, I want to look you know, you read some of the stories in, in the book and you think this is absolutely completely nuts. Like you know. they went off and they had this vision to uh, there was this old scientific Victorian theory about penguin eggs that did actually be a, if you took a penguin egg in this early formation, it would actually be like part reptilian dinosaur. Wow, The only trouble was penguins lay their, lay their eggs in the middle of an Antarctic winter. Yeah. so how do you how do you I mean, you know pitch dark you know you only would have the moonlight and then the only mm-hmm. if it wasn't cloudy and then and it's also cold, cold the coldest time of year. And the only way to get these penguin eggs, and they set out. These three men set out with the desire, which only to get penguin eggs, and wow. they bring the penguin eggs. Right. And they, and and of course, as as you would expect, they the theory's wrong. Yeah, the theory, you know. And so, they, and they risk life and limb and experience temperatures of negative seventy-seven degrees, and 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 literally, nearly, very nearly die, and and over and over and over again, and 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 just like this is just just such a remarkable story. like. And, and it, at another level is so incredibly inspiring to think about people doing these sorts of things. And, yeah. and I think that's what's what makes, makes this Antarctic history come alive, hopefully for people when they are thinking about adversity and risk and danger and in, in our modern lives, in which we have a lot of adversity, risk, and danger in our modern life right so, <laughs> Yeah,
0: so. yeah. Wow, okay, you know what, when we finish talking, I'm going to go back and be thinking about my uh, my fiction storytelling in hopefully some broader, deeper ways. This is really cool to think about. Okay, great, great. Uh, all right, Brad, we need to know where can people find you, your current book, audio book, and then um, information when your new book comes out?
1: Oh, great, sure. Thank- happy to talk about that. The um, So our book, called when your life depends on it extreme decision-making lessons from the antarctic is on amazon it's on we also put publish it through ingram spark uh it's on uh kindle and kindle unlimited actually it's available right now if people are on amazon prime it's for the very limited period of time it's still in the amazon prime if you're in the u.s it's um uh the audiobooks on itunes and audible and Amazon and um, the website. So if you want to learn more about the book, more and more, more about me and David, uh, David Herzl, it's www.extremedecisions.com. That's extreme-decisions. So okay. dash between the words extreme and decisions. And 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 we love to hear from people. And, and if you want to contact me directly, it's brad.borken, B-O-R-K-A-N, at dot author at gmail.com. But I mean, there have links on the website. You can contact us through that. and
0: Good. And
1: always happy to chat and, and talk about things. And
0: Excellent. And then when you start announcing the new book, that'll be uh, announced on the website. Do you have an email list?
1: Uh, no, we actually don't. And this was something I really need to, to do. But uh, in in amongst all these things, I go to Mark Dawson, you know, yeah. listen to to these lectures by Joanna Penn. And the first thing you need is a mailing list. It's like... Yeah, so I was like, no. The first thing I need is an audiobook. <laughs> the, next <thing> need <laughs> is the next thing I need is this. Next thing I need is, and so in a way, it's like I keep thinking I need a, I need a mailing list. But it, it, it's I, 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 for Dave and I. It's it's we've got stories to tell, and we've got we tell stories in a way that no one else tells them. And I think this new book is just will be exciting. I can't tell you reveal the name of yeah. it because the name gives away a part of this, the story. But I think what we did is we said what interests us, and we said, well, actually, they're tons of stuff that interests us. And, you know, first the North Pole, first the South Pole, first up Everest, first moon landing, first, you know, and it wasn't all first. it's like laying the transatlantic cable and all sorts of different things that happened around the world and that influenced our modern life. And we basically said, oh, let's just grab a bunch of those, like maybe 10 or 11, nine, 10, 11 of those. So we're making lists of spreadsheets and lists of all these different <laughs> exciting things that happen in the world in not far history, not like the invention of fire or the wheel or something like that, and not new stuff like the internet or iPhone or things like that. We've written about a lot, but say like in this period of history, which is sort of around the time of the explorers. And so what is, let's just pick a bunch of these things and write about them. Yeah. And we started making these spreadsheets. And all of a sudden we discovered a pattern and there's a pattern to them. Oh. And we're writing about the pattern. And I don't think anyone has ever seen this pattern before or discovered it. And we just feel like we're like on... And, 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 it's, and it's not just about these events but it's actually the the people behind them the deci- and then focusing on decision making and what we can learn from modern day decision making and I think it's going to, it's definitely a big book hopefully we'll you know sell more than a few thousand copies but hopefully it, it will change the way people look at problems yeah. even the problems we face in society in the world today like how when you look at a problem you're like okay that's you know let's look at it from these different angles and and the way a lot of big things happen in the world is like people looking at problems from multiple different angles so that's the that's wow. the uh, that's it's exciting. It's it, so uh, but it's trying wow. to also, David, I work full time, so it's trying to juggle that and yeah, have a, have a life and
0: yeah, so. all right. So extreme-decisions.com, right? Yeah, and yeah. there's a lot of information there. I went there today and I was like, oh my gosh, I can't even like read and watch yeah. all this. You have well, um, different interviews and stuff there, too. So yeah, I've been on,
1: on a few interviews and, and some of the TV shows, and then um. There's also my some photographs I was in Antarctica. I spent November in Antarctica, so there's some of my photographs in there.
0: Oh gosh! Wow. No November in Antarctica is the beginning of summer.
1: It's the beginning of spring. Spring. It's okay. Be, yeah, it's just it at, at just the end. It was the first ship sailing out of you know out of uh, Argentina to get to Antarctica. In oh the spring wow! Springtime. So it's like. And spent oh a month, 3, 4, forty-five nautical miles. And so quite exciting.
0: Oh my gosh! Wow. Okay. Yes. I, I have to go uh, read or listen to this book. I think I think you've got me hooked uh, on Great. the audio book because I also listened to the sample and I was like, but what's going to happen next? Uh, well, so.
1: Dennis has such a wonderful voice. He's just a and and he, I, I also he's just a remarkable human being and uh,
0: nice. Well, Brad, thank you so much for being on the show. And I'm telling you, you need to tell me when the next book comes out because I want you to come back and talk oh, to I'd us like about to. that. Oh, I'd
1: love to. That'd be, be wonderful. i we Certainly, love to come back. Well, as soon as we can announce the book, I'd love to
0: yeah, come back go. and talk
1: about it because I think it will. it is an exceedingly exciting topic.
0: Sweet! Oh, I'm excited already. Just thinking about patterns, and and right. I'm an Excel girl. So as soon as you said Excel spreadsheet, everything mapped out. I'm like, oh, that sounds lovely.
1: So well, that's,
0: <laughs> I'm weird. So it's no, okay. No, no, that's it good. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. This was really fun.
1: Oh, great! Yeah, thanks. It's been lovely. Great, great, great friend to chat with you. Um, and if I you had mentioned it before, just to leave your audience with with one uh, point, if I was just to make make one final point, is one of the themes that comes out through all the Antarctic stories, is that the explorers never and we we use a phrase never ever give up trying. That no matter what happened to them, falling, crash, whatever, they never stop trying to to succeed. And literally, like even though. Shackleton didn't get to the south Pole. You could say, well, yeah, that's quite a plan. He didn't, he actually turned around and went, went back. They literally got down to the very last biscuits that all they had for breakfast were biscuits and, and, and each one had one. And that was the end of their food, all their food until they could get to the next uh, depot of, of supplies and, and they never stopped trying to, to succeed and I think there's just just you know as authors you know there's so many times you think I just can't do this that's just you know I'm not the story's not coming together every you know just just keep trying